How do we best do mission in the 21st century? How can our churches partner with communities in the world in co-development? Well, here to discuss this and other mission-related issues is Hunter Farrell, the co-author with Bala Killip of a new book from IVP, InterVarsity Press America, called Freeing Congregational Mission, a practical vision for companionship, cultural humility, and co-development. Hunter Farrell is the director of Pittsburgh Theological Seminary's World Mission Initiative. He's worked for 30 years as a missionary director of World Mission for the Presbyterian Church in the States and is a professor of mission and intercultural studies. Uh, and my co-host, of course, Ian Reid, uh, Reverend Ian Reid of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North, New Zealand. Gentlemen, hello and welcome to the show. Great to be with you today. Thanks for the invitation. That's a pleasure, sir. Now, how is mission being short-circuited in our churches today, Hunter? Yeah, thanks for the question. My sense is that we go through the motions of mission. Um, I think we have allowed the cultural layers that have been built up over the years to shape the ways we do mission. And I think it's a time for us to look back to Scripture, uh, particularly the ways that uh, we see uh, Jesus Christ engaging in mission in the Gospels. It is so countercultural. It is so based on human relationship, that intimate space between people, particularly unlike people. He reaches across lines of difference. And I think it's time for our churches to reconsider that. We, we in the States, I think, have sort of set records in terms of giving and of, of time and money to all kinds of mission industries that have grown up and I think it's. I think that the challenge for us now is to uh, re reboot our our understanding of mission. We've allowed much history and some current cultural trends in the states, and I can imagine in uh, New Zealand and and around the world um, to uh, shape the ways that we understand mission. Have we actually become the beneficiaries of our own mission work in a sense? I fear that's the case, um, Brent. It, it, what we've done, uh, and I'm, I'm more familiar with uh, uh, evangelical, mainline Protestant and Catholic mission in the U.S. context, uh, so I may be projecting a bit, and, and you'll, um, you'll, you'll catch me short if I do. But my sense has been, as I, I look across this, and we've done significant research with um, more than 1,200 what we call congregational mission leaders. So these are the people, mostly lay people, who hunger to get their congregations engaged in the neighborhood, engaged in the world. And so these are the mission advocates, the people who are always kind of battling those uh, elders or um, deacons in the, the church who are, you know, concerned about paying bills and, and paying pastors' salaries and important things. No, no comment on that. But uh, so many of the ways that um, we have shaped, at least culturally speaking, we, we've engaged in a, a thing that I call selfie mission, where we posit ourselves before a, a sea of human need, oftentimes people of color, as we posit ourselves as the hands and feet of God, which I, I in fact, don't think is a particularly biblical notion. Um, we, I, I think I've heard that in almost every commissioning service and ordination service I've gone to, but I think we have to be careful. Um, we're invited by a gracious God to join God in God's mission to the world. It's, it turns the world upside down. It it uh, moves across lines of human difference. It draws us together. And I think we have made mission into a thing that uh, kind of reflects our goodness. It, 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 it foregrounds us. We actually upstage God in God's mission. And I think that's a, a, a dangerous place to be, quite frankly. 
Yeah, what's been the impact of, you write a lot in your book about short-term mission trips. How has that impacted the local communities? Uh, the, the community to which these teams go? Mm. U.S. Christians each year spend between $3.5 billion and $5 billion to go on these trips, whether they're local, national, or international. There's a growing amount of scholarship, uh, studies that have been done by evangelical and mainline Protestant researchers primarily, that point to the fact that there is that these trips are relatively ineffective in terms of the impact on the communities to which we go. The surprise for many people, uh, because of that self-mission, that, that notion of mission as self-transformation that seems to be so important in our cultural context, we're also finding that they're not very, these trips are not very effective to impact us. It doesn't bring the kind of transformation that we have always assumed. And so in the book, we try to look at that particularly. There's a pretty thick chapter on short-term mission and, and trying to look at it not, not in a spirit of criticism, uh, because I think short-term mission, on the one hand, it's here to stay. And on the other, I think it's really important. It is a space of transformation. By God's grace, we see people, all of us have stories of people who've been deeply impacted or in fact transformed. And so what the book tries to do is isolate those elements, develop those, and suggest to our congregational mission leaders ways that they can actually use short-term mission trips for the transformation of their people and people around the world. Yes. How can short-term mission trips be reshaped, do you think, to yield better results? I think there's a the transformational space is when you get different parts of Christ's body together. There's power in that in that encounter, but we tend to default because of our cultural background, because of uh, you know 500 plus years of colonial history, very much embedded in the mission history. Um, we tend to default to kind of pristine notions of development. We're here to help you. We're here. We know better than you know uh, what's what's best for you and, and what. What, what your needs are. And I think that so short circuits uh, mission in the way of Jesus Christ, where Jesus often encounters a hurting person and he offers a question, what do you want me to do for you? <laughs> what a radical question. You know, the, the, the deaf man says, well, <laughs> can't you tell? The blind man says, are you crazy? Um, and yet that inviting that person to step into the space of their own healing making them uh, a co-creator, a co-healer with Jesus Christ is pretty powerful. And I think that that can, if we follow that model, uh, even in terms of short-term mission, we're able to build um, Christ-centered relationships that can, in fact, change the world. Yes, I was going to ask you, why should we develop a theology of companionship in our mission? Because this is quite radical, isn't it? Well, (laughs) I I hope it's only as radical as the the example of Jesus. Um, In the sense so much of our mission, uh, you know, we come out of an era, right, you know, a hundred years ago, when mission is conquest and mission is conversion. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, what we see in the mission of Jesus uh, throughout the gospel narratives is uh, a deep concern for human relationships. So whereas we've talked about mission as accompaniment or mission as uh, liberation or mission as uh, conversion or healing, I think it's really important for us to, to look at that, that space of the human encounter uh, of Jesus with uh, the different people that, uh, whom he encounters. To me, that, that notion of breaking bread with, companion, with break bread with, it points to that, 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 that sacred space of, uh, as we walk in the way of Jesus, we come in contact with folks who are different from us, and we're empowered by the Spirit to uh, create a new way of relating. 
and it may be quite countercultural. Um, it may mean us saying to our the cultural narratives, those tropes, that we know what's best for the other. Um, we have to set those aside, and we're invited into the more difficult space uh, of considering where our privilege, our benefits, our strong economy may be in part the reason for our sister or brother's pain and suffering. So it brings us into a different space. It calls us into a deeper transformation. And I think that only happens through the trust and confidence that we have in human relationship. Rita, I'm going to bring you in here. Thoughts, questions? Yeah, you've stolen most of my questions, Brent, by the way. But, sorry. Um, which is always, it's always good to do. But the uh, particularly the New Zealand kind of church history is uh, complicated around the kind of colonialism and the missionaries kind of coming. And it's a complicated history. Uh, how do we, so, some of it really good and, and some of it not so good, but how do we not kind of redo kind of the sins of the past? How, how do we kind of move on from some of those complicated, you know, kind of things that have happened in the past, move forward, but not kind of do the same thing unwittingly, I guess is my big question. Right. No, great question, Rito. And I'm, yeah, our, our hearts are beating together on that. Um, I think we have to be honest. It, it's so easy for us to move into a knee-jerk reaction. And so to the, the critics of mission, I get defensive. I, I, I put my walls up and I say, yeah, but they changed the world. These people gave their lives. I've been to too many missionary cemeteries in Korea, West Africa. These people poured out their lives. It, and it's true, full stop, they did change the world. It is also true that they were often unwitting um, agents of whether it's carrying disease or um, cultural erasure or agents of genocide. Um, and as I say, unwittingly uh, in, for the most part. Um, I think we have to look at that complicated history, be honest with it. I think it calls us to confession. Um, I think it calls us to learn from the past. My concern is that much of our, the ways that we engage in mission uh, in the United States, which is coming primarily from congregations. I, and by God's grace, we're in a moment where our mission structures are less hierarchical. It's, uh, we are in fact, every, every church is a mission agency uh, today in, in, in our cultural context. It used to be that the you know, Catholic missionary superiors, uh, superiors of missionary orders, um, mission agencies, evangelical and mainline, those were kind of, they were the decision makers, they were professionals and that, and that was good and that was right for the time. But by God's grace, things have flattened out. And one of the primary hopes of this book is to equip the people who are making the decision. They're deploying volunteers, they're sending money, they're engaging global neighbors. And if we haven't learned from that uh, difficult and complex past, uh, where you know 500 plus years ago, mission and colonialism grew up. You know they're they're half brothers, if you will, half siblings, and and that that creates some profoundly difficult challenges for us. And I would prefer us to go into that challenge with our eyes open, and to be gracious to one another, to to give thanks to God for what missionaries did in the past, and say, and can we learn from their shortcomings? Because many of them. I think they got, in many ways, they got on the wrong boat. <laughs> they were on those colonial school, schooners. They were on, they, they took advantage of the, 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 the accoutrements, the trappings of colonial power, and were often confused by folks in those colonial colonized nations. They were confused with colonial agents. Um, and so how did 
the gospel of Jesus Christ get watered down by the colonial message of, of civilize, conquer and civilize. And those are profoundly antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I do think we need to go in with our eyes open. I think it is a complex history, but we don't do ourselves any favors at all by turning our backs on it and just saying, you know, as my, my upbringing in the kind of the evangelical wing of the Presbyterian church here, we were like, don't you mess with our missionaries. They're, they're good as gold and we're, we stand by them. I think it is a nuanced past. And to, I try to, in the book to, to lift up, I try to list exhaustively some of the incredible um, achievements uh, done by missionaries who, you know, gave of their own lives, sometimes their kids' lives. It's, it's, it's remarkable. And uh, we have to be honest and face up to the ways that the missionary movement shortchanged the power of the gospel and took advantage of the, the wind in the sails was colonialism rather than the spirit. Yes, it was a real problem in New Zealand, I think. We now, don't we, Rita, have missionaries coming to New Zealand from overseas countries like Africa. They've been a terrific blessing. Definitely. We have um, as many good things coming out of South Africa. We've got many, uh, South Korea. We have many missionaries coming from South Korea, but yes. also all their cults as well. I, I keep popping up all, all over the place, which is good. Right. Not so good. No. Sure. Why, why is it important? Because you write a lot about co-development in, in the mission field, don't you, Hunter? And it's, it's, a, it's a great idea. Why is it important to empower co-development on the mission field? One of the things that's, so my background's in, I'm, I'm a Presbyterian minister and my background's in anthropology. I did my doctoral work in anthropology. And I've always kind of smiled as I watch anthropologists throw stones at missionaries and the church and, you know, people who believe in, 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 in Christ. Um, I see the same thing in the international development circles. They oftentimes are very critical of the church and faith-based groups, et cetera. And yet, International development also grows up in the era of colonialism, alongside the, 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 the mission of the church in the modern European missionary age. Uh, and, and so international development, as we, we intend it to be good and, you know, and a blessing for people in, in poorer countries around the world, and yet at its essence, it, it is based on uh, profoundly colonial assumptions that we know what's best for these nations. Uh, we have the agenda for their development. Uh, it also is connected in with our own foreign interests, um, our, our, our own interests in, in, in their developing their economies to help our uh, markets and, and serve as markets for our, our goods, et cetera. So there's, there, that's a mixed bag as well. And I think the, the international development community needs to be a little uh, more aware of this. What I propose and, and what I see in the ministry of Jesus is uh, a ministry of co-development. And that is uh, recognizing, I mean, it's my experience with my spouse. I, don't, I can't speak for anyone else. I won't involve anyone else in their marriages in this. But um, I think I came into marriage with a a deep set assumption that, you know, I, I could help my wife become a better person. If she would just do a few things that I thought she should do, she would become a better person, probably a little more like me, but, you know, that, that would help her. And I think she came in as we got to know each other over the years, a great source of conflict was we both had this agenda for each other. Um, and, and if you've ever done marriage counseling, I mentioned this in the book, it's kind of painful as you see both spouses or spouses to be trying to help their spouse become a better person in, in front of you. It's, 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 it's awkward. And yet we do that in development. We think we know what that person needs better than they do. And I think uh, what I see in the ministry of, of Jesus, uh, particularly in, in Luke and, and, and John's Gospels, uh, we see this 
remarkable commitment. I mean, this is the son of God walking on earth and still he opens up a space to invite the person to be an agent of healing in their own, in their own healing, to be an agent of transformation in their own transformation. Um, and what do they do with it? Uh, they fall in love with Jesus. They want to go back to their village and tell everybody about Jesus. It strikes me that we have programmatized, we've routinized the space of development, of self-development, of co-development in ways that cut out the gospel power. Um, we most it's fascinating to me, even among our evangelical churches and conservative churches in the mainline circle, we find so many folks engaging in mission as kind of a sense of international development. They're there to help improve nutrition, help to help to uh, improve schooling, education for kids. These are all good things. And this is a part of God's mission. Full stop. I'm not not contesting that. And yet the power of the gospel, speaking a word of, of Christ in, in those spaces, we have secularized mission uh, in the States profoundly to whereas we have, there's, I hear pushback from global partners all the time. They say, we love your short-term mission trips, but you know, they think they're the United Way or the Red Cross. They come among us and they do good things, but we have yet to hear a testimony. No one shares with us the powerful acts of God in their lives. And, and many of our, many global Christians, uh, you, if you go to Korea, they're, they're blown away by this. They, they can't, it's such a holistic culture where the spiritual is so profoundly a part of, of the we, the, the, the warp and the woof of life, that I think, I think this is a challenge. I think this is a major lesson that we need to look to the global church to reawaken us. I think that space of co-development allows us to bring uh, spiritual resources, uh, the resources of, of the human being standing in front of us. And it opens us up, I think, in the way of many of our, what we call 12-step programs in the States, the Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, et cetera. It opens us up to a space of deep humility where we open our lives and say, friend, brother, sister, you're not the only one who needs healing, who needs development. I do as well. And so even, even in the letters of Paul, people in the States, the biblical Scholars are, keep talking about kind of this hierarchical Paul and, and Paul looking down at, at the others. I find a profound sense of, of mutuality in uh, Paul's relationship with the church at Philippi, the church in Galatia, even with the Corinthian church and the, 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 the challenges to the relationship that they had. He still uh, has this remarkable ability to open up a space and allow them to make decisions, to grow on their own, to they're, they're charged with the gospel. They've got to live it out in their context. He's not able to do that from his space where he is, you know, uh, miles away or in a Roman prison cell or wherever he is. So I just think that's a, that's, that's a powerful um, image for us uh, in that, that sense of co-development as a space of mutuality, as a space of mutual transformation in the power of the spirit. It has, I think it, it needs to be centered around God in Christ. Yes. So what does co-development and companionship and the other things we've been talking about, uh, what does it actually look like in the local church? Well, I think in the local church, I, one of the, we, I dedicate the last chapter of the book to sort of providing some tools and sort of uh, some strategies for congregational mission leaders, I find in churches from left to right in the States, you go across the, the gambit, uh, theologically speaking, and you find individuals who hunger to engage their congregation in the neighborhood. Neighborhoods have changed in the States, particularly urban and, and suburban neighborhoods, and people feel profoundly irrelevant 
to the people around them. They walk out the door and then they drive, you know, 30 or 40 minutes across town to, to go to their homes. I think, I think mission is the space that I think mission opens up a space for us to encounter folks around the church, folks around the world in ways that can allow us uh, into the co-development or mutual transformation. Uh, It teaches us lessons of cultural humility in the way of Jesus Christ, who submits himself for 30 years before he preaches his first sermon. He's he learns the language, he learns the culture of first century Israel, and he does so in a way that shows profound respect for the institutions and the thoughts and patterns of thinking of that, of that culture. Um, I, I see people, uh, particularly, you, you'll get a, a congregation and there's a missionary who, you know, was in, you know, uh, uh, Korea or Indonesia or um, Malawi um, for years and they come back and, and they've got some, uh, an insight, a, a way of looking at life that it, it can be so powerful when their congregational mission leaders connect them in with what God is doing in the congregation. Um, so in the last chapter of the book, I share some strategies to invite people to consider ways that they can use short-term mission experiences, even if this is only an afternoon or a Saturday morning at a soup kitchen in town uh, or a, um, a shelter for folks living in homelessness. I think it opens up a door for them to begin a kind of missional formation of their leaders. In the States, and I imagine in in many places in the world, we routinize, we programatize, we we form a committee. Uh, Presbyterians are great at forming committees. So that's what we do. We institutionalize the movement of God's spirit. It's a movement. It's not an institution. And so we try to... um, bring it down into, uh, I think, into a form that we can control. So we say, okay, we'll allow the spirit to move in our mission committee meeting from 7 p.m. to 8.30. Don't be late. Um, and in fact, it's, it's so much more than that. It, it has to do with that awkward, that profoundly unsettling space when I'm at the soup kitchen and someone asks me a question and I don't know how to answer it. Or they ask me for something, I don't know if I should give it or, or shouldn't give it or, or if I have it to give. It's in those spaces that we're forced to rely on God's spirit. Um, and I think that's what allows us. I think that's what the disciples uh, were so charged on. That, that's why they followed Jesus day after day, despite the hardships and the opposition. So, yeah, I think when we bring together companionship, cultural humility, and co-development, I think it creates that space of uh, a radical dependence on God in Christ in the space of mission. Rito, thoughts, questions? I think that's so helpful, isn't it? Particularly around the yeah, kind of the more conservative church kind of block off what mission is in particular and kind of say, oh, we're doing mission uh, because we've got a missions committee or whatever it is. And rather than opening the church up uh, and saying, what does mission look like for us, you know, during the week uh, at all times? I think that's that, that's kind of really helpful to, to kind of think through, isn't it? Carry no, on. I'm just wondering, I mean, what what would happen if in our youth groups, we're all, all of us in, in Western contexts are seeing youth groups diminish, part of that is because we don't challenge them. What if rather than you know, sitting around and trying to do a program that's intellectually based and uh, et cetera, what if we let, let's go out, let's, let's take a walk in the neighborhood, let's, let's go to the soup kitchen, let's serve, and then do some reflection after it. That leads us into Bible study that's going to have a kick to it. I think that's going to connect young people with the power of God in Christ in ways that, you know, my best 
Bible lessons don't just don't do. It's if we can draw on people's encounter in that space of mission, I think it's it can be really a, a deep impact. Before we go, and we've just about run out of time, Hunter, but I've got to ask you a question about food parcels and food packaging programs, because you write about these in your book. We're talking about co-development. How effective do you think food parcels or food packaging programs, as you call them in the States, really are? Yeah, thanks. I lift up um, in the studies that we did with more than 1,200 congregational mission leaders, evangelical, mainline, and Catholic in the United States context, we looked at the top six, the, the, the six most popular mission strategies. How do you engage in God's mission? Well, child sponsorship, orphanages, short-term mission trips, uh, and what we call meal packaging or um, meal parcels um, uh, were in the top six. And, and a lot and millions and uh, billions of dollars goes to each of those, now I call them mission industries, right? I think we get in a, a dangerous place with the mission marketplace in that we start responding to cues that these mission industries give us. The challenge is mission is primarily a relationship. It's a Christ-centered relationship. And so if I'm doing my sanitized packaging of meals and shipping them across to the space of need, well, I'm never going to come in contact with. I'm never going to touch a person uh, who is receiving that package. I'll never get in a conversation with them. I'll never actually see them. So I'm stuck with those alluring images that are on the uh, website of every one of these. I, I looked at the top eight, the eight largest meal packaging organizations within the U.S. context. What I think the Gospels invite us to is to the kind of life that touches life. It's, 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 the, it's, the, it's grasping of hands, it's the embrace, it's the not having all the answers, it's the awkwardness of that space. The challenge with the meal packaging work, these parcels that are sent into Haiti, I think it's the happy hunting ground of, of, of this, this kind of industry, at least in the US context. Um, the challenge of it is, it, in a sense, it inoculates us against doing anything real about hunger. Uh, my, my package, it, it feeds the child in Haiti for a day, which is great. Praise God. That's a good thing. And particularly when it's in a, a context of disaster, if it's post-disaster, if it's post-disaster recovery, that's important. But a, a growing number of books today that we read show us if we continue to act like this is a disaster, when in fact the country needs to get on its feet, move into recovery and then development, rehabilitation and then development, um, we're doing it a disservice to continue to pour meals in to Haiti. We are undercutting uh, local farmers. It, it simply doesn't make sense for them to grow crops if we're undercutting the cost and the cost is being depressed because of our benevolence. So I think we as Christians need to be, uh, you know, we need to be wise as serpents and ask some questions about the ways that we're engaging in, in, in mission. Many of these groups don't, don't engage in any hunger education. They don't help us understand, why are these people hungry? And so God bless the, the mission elder in every congregation who will come, come, to, the, come to the pastor and say, why, we're doing this again this year? We did it last year. Why, why are we keep doing it, but nothing changes? I think that's a, a healthy question to ask. And uh, I hope that more of our, our people do ask that question. Just before we go, uh, and I know we've almost run out of time, can I ask both of you, I'm a pastor in a local church, be it in the US or in New Zealand or Australia for you, Rito. 
And I wanted to engage with my community, with the folks who live on the next over the fence from the church, the folks who live across the road from the church. How can I go about this? How can I practically do mission in 2022 in a small town, say, or even a larger town in the US or Australia or New Zealand? Yeah, well, I would say, and we, we try to say it in the book, I think an important start is to realize, and this is a real challenge for us in the States where we're extremely individualistic. The, the first challenge is to recognize God's mission is too big and too wonderful and too complex to do it by ourselves. So to imagine us doing it by ourselves, I think is we're getting off on the wrong foot. So I think engaging with others, reaching out and saying, hey, I, I'm concerned. There, there are kids in the school across the street from our church who are not getting a good education. Is there a way that we can come alongside parents and teachers to strengthen them? They'll know their needs. They know what, what needs strengthening. Could we just commit ourselves through a ministry of prayer and human relationship and some modest supports could we just start in that direction to begin to accompany them and see them as companions in God's mission? I think those kinds of opportunities that every church is aware, there, there are people sitting in our pews who, who see those spaces that need the touch of, of Jesus Christ. I think we should listen to them rather than, again, I think we often try to programatize, put into a committee structure, et cetera. But open that up. What if after worship one day we said, let's, let's talk about the neighborhood. Where do you see those spaces that God is calling us to be God's people and accompany uh, our neighbors? What does it mean to love our neighbor in that context? Mm. Rido, final thoughts on mission in a small church? For me, on a very practical level, uh, what I encourage people to do is because everyone is so time poor, just trying to help people be available. I think that that's one of the big things that I try and encourage people to do is be available for your neighbours when they need something moved or when they need a hand with something. Be available for them and then just get to know them through th those ways. When they're when it's their birthday, remember their birthday and go and knock on the door and say hello. Yeah, and just those kind of just simple things that I've seen that in our little community where I live, that those simple things have really opened up doors to the people who would never go to church all right that's fine thank you gentlemen thank you hunter that was wonderful so many questions we could have we could have asked you yeah yeah well i appreciate the time you've given this this is great and uh we'll look forward to continuing conversation someday oh i hope so yes we'd love to have you back because as i said we've only just touched the tip of the iceberg haven't we really thank you so much brother god awesome. bless you with you thank you god bless okay. you thank you bye, -bye. Bye, bye we hope you've enjoyed this episode of the god story podcast to ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com.